It's my great pleasure to welcome you to the first uh, ever uh, of a Zoom meeting that I have uh, chaired. And for the first meeting, opening up the new series uh, uh, on video, on Zoom, uh, for the Fairbank Center on our critical issues confronting China. The director of the Fairbank Center has asked me to say that he's all concerned about our health and trying to manage issues, and that his staff has been working very hard to try to make arrangements now for a series of programs. There are a lot of technical issues to be worked out, and I want to thank especially uh, uh, Mark Grady and uh, Nick Drake, who've worked so hard in trying to get the arrangements set up for this first meeting which we hope will uh, go smoothly. Uh, we'll have Bill Overhaul talk for 45 minutes. Um, also, uh, we already have several sessions that will follow this. Uh, next week, um, on the April 22nd, we'll have Jim Milvenin, who is one of the great intelligence uh, specialists in this country, uh, looking at uh, China questions uh, from the intelligence point of view. Then uh, the following week on the 29th, we have Carla Freeman, who's talking about the global commons and what China is doing in space and the ocean and other areas uh, that relate to, to the global commons. Uh, then on May 6th, we'll have Alex Lucan. Uh, Alex Lucan um, spent a year at the Harvard Kennedy School. His father was head of the Duma's Committee on Foreign Relations and was ambassador to the United States. And Alex has been a China specialist and is one of the leading specialists in the Soviet Union and will convey to us some of the views from the Soviet Union. Today, it's our great privilege uh, to have Bill Overholt to agree to step in uh, when we didn't have anybody to fill this uh, slot today and we decided we want to get started. And we asked uh, Bill to kindly do that. Uh, as you know, Bill uh, graduated Harvard a few years ago, uh, and he served for uh, decades in Hong Kong as a kind of banker, researcher, uh, uh, got a PhD in political science at Yale, and he, in effect, had a, as a banker, head of a committee in the banks, he had uh, 10 to 15 research assistants, uh, which we in the academic world do not have. So he was able to carry on research on the economics and the politics of East Asia uh, in a, quite an extraordinary way. And he was quite early in seeing some of the trends in Asia. His book on the rise of China uh, was written, was it in the 80s, Bill? Well, it came out in 93. 93, it came out in 93. But it was at a time and not many people thought China was gonna rise so rapidly. And Bill, who had been following the trends, could see that they were and sort of uh, followed that. And he's going to try to lay out for us in the first of our video series what it's like uh, 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 dealing with China and what this new era is likely to be like and then what uh, China and the United States will do fitting into that era. So without further ado, Bill, it's yours. Thank you for doing this. Thank you, Ezra. I'm delighted to kick off the new uh, Zoom version of our series. I'll try to be a little less sterile than the environments we're trying to live in. 
I titled the talk, China and America, a new game, because I believe we're in a different game from the rising power, established power games of the past. Sometimes when you, alterations are made in the rules or implements of the game, the nature of the game changes. Make a baseball bigger and softer, and you have a different game. You have to pitch underhand. Our leading scholars and strategists often misread the lessons of the past for the current U.S.-China relationship because they fail to recognize that we're in a new game. Disciplinary silos often favor an overemphasis on political military issues at the expense of economic ones. The power of pressure groups in Washington lead the same way toward an overemphasis on military and in particular. I'm going to start with the problems of understanding and playing the right game and end on the same theme uh, while addressing other crucial issues in the relationship. I'm going to speak as an American deeply concerned about the American role in the world. My key messages are military conflict is far from inevitable. We have serious conflicts with China, but we have enormous mutual interests, many of which are unrecognized. China is not a demon and our allies are not angels. We need to live in the world as it is, not the world as we would like it to be, and we don't always do that. To continue as a world leader, America's going to have to play the new game. So let's start with, is war with China inevitable? A common baseline for addressing that these days is the Thucydides trap. From the time of ancient Greece through World War II, when a rising power conflicted with an established power, about three quarters of the time there was a war. In that entire era, the typical way in which these conflicts were managed was, first of all, they were between neighbors and the neighbors grabbed part of each other's territory, Athens and Sparta, Germany and France. The post-World War II conflicts are not like that. Two things have happened. First, we've learned to grow economies much faster and more efficiently than in the past. And second, military technology has become so destructive that if countries pursue the methods of the pre-World War II era, typically both will lose. As a result, the path to becoming a great power has become primarily economic. This is a fundamental shift in the way the world works. To miss that 
as most of our international strategists have, is rather like an economist missing the Industrial Revolution. When I worked as an investment banker, at the bottom of every recommendation, we had to put a, a disclaimer that said, uh, past, re past results are not a guarantee of future results. I think we need a disclaimer uh, for a whole generation of uh, political scientists like Mearsheimer that says exactly the same thing. In the Cold War, we of course needed a superior military. We had the Berlin airlift, the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had to win those battles. But it was our economic strategy that won the Cold War. We delivered decisive aid and institution building programs to our allies and friends. And then using the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank, the IMF, GATT, WTO. We created a global network of development. Friends and allies who maintained our prosperity and maintained each other's prosperities. A self-sustaining, almost global network. Soviet Union took the opposite path. They basically poured everything into the military. The result, they went bankrupt. The end of the Cold War was a bankruptcy, an economic event. So that was our experience in the Cold War. What about other countries? Well, Japan became a very big power without much of a military. South Korea was initially inferior economically, militarily, and in political stability to North Korea. Uh, but then General Park Chung-hee shifted the emphasis to an all-out bet on economic development. North Korea maintained its traditional emphasis on the military. As a result, today, the South Korean economy is 50 times the size of North Korea. Indonesia, until the 1960s, claimed much of Southeast Asia. They were an economic basket case. And the resulting social stress meant that Indonesia had more Islamic jihadis than the entire rest of the world combined. Then General Suharto shifted. He gave up most of those claims on the rest of Southeast Asia and focused on economic development. Shortly, Indonesia became the acknowledged leader of ASEAN. In China, Deng Xiaoping cut back the military from 16% of GDP to 3%. And he settled most of China's land border disputes in order to focus on economic development. The result was an extraordinary rise 
to big power status well before the current military buildup started. China's current military rise is very impressive, but its stature in the world depends on its domestic economic success and its international economic strategy. So the path to becoming a, a big important power has become an economic strategy protected by a strong military or an ally with a strong military. Economic strategies differ from military strategies in that both sides can win. When Germany wars with France, one side loses. When China and the US compete, in principle, both sides can succeed. Moreover, China's 8,000 miles away. US-China direct territorial issues are trivial. Of course, if we behave like a pre-World War II power, we make the Thucydides trap a self-fulfilling prophecy. To some extent, we're falling into that trap, as are China and Japan. Then Graham Allison's recent book about the Thucydides trap gives us a brilliant exposition of what will happen. Military conflict is not a law of history, particularly post-World War II history. We have a very complex relationship with China. There are some issues that we have to confront very firmly, like some of China's predatory behavior in the South China Sea and its refusal to grant market access to our companies of the kind that we give to their companies. Effective Sino-American collaboration has led to the greatest reduction of poverty in human history. For the first time in 315,000 years of known human history, we have more basic goods in the world, toys, shoes, clothing, food, than we need. There's still a distribution problem, but there's a surfeit. There are immense national security benefits from the resulting stabilization. I'll come back to that a little later. Sino-American collaboration has pulled the world into the post-industrial era, where most jobs are in the, in the service economy, away from the back-breaking labor of the agricultural and manufacturing economies. Sino-American collaboration provides the world with the only hope of dealing with the great challenges of the next generation, climate change and environmental degradation. If China were still mired in poverty like India, the world would have no hope. You never know that from our politicians today, both parties. 
they prefer to focus exclusively on the conflicts. They particularly like to blame China for our own failure to adjust our society to the job losses caused by automation. Our society was severely stressed by losing 3 million manufacturing jobs in a decade. When China had to shed 45 million state enterprise jobs, mostly in manufacturing, they midwifed people into the services sector rather than blaming us. Now, how about the maritime issues with our allies? These really look like a Thucydides trap problem. They're important, but more complicated than we usually understand. Chinese behavior in the South China Seas, particularly its militarization of rocks there, is quite destabilizing. China broke its promise not to militarize the area. China broke its promise to withdraw from Scarborough Shoal. China saw, signed the Law of the Seas Agreement, then violated it. And it's important to mention that China is impoverishing millions of people in Southeast Asia by building dams that divert their vitally needed water. We have to oppose some of this behavior, perhaps sometimes by force. But there are some other things we need to take into consideration. China's behavior pretty much reflects the behavior of our friends and allies uh, in an earlier era. China is special because it's late and the size of China. The claims of smaller Japan cover twice as much of the ocean as China. The model for Chinese island building is previous Japanese buildup of a little rock uh, called Okinatorishima, about halfway between Taiwan and Guam. And uh, Japan draws a circle of 400,000 uh, square miles of uh, square kilometers uh, of zone around that, much more than China claims around any of its rocks. If you apply those Hague Tribunal standards to the Senkaku Jiaoyu Island uh, dispute, those islands are not islands, they're rocks. Japan doesn't have the right to draw big circles around them. US policy for decades acknowledged that China's claims to those rocks are equal to Japan's claims. In 2012, Japan's government ignored our strong warnings not to have Europe, the government buy those islands from a private owner. Japan ignored our warnings. We then turned around and backed Japan emphatically, which broke our traditional even-handed policy in Asia. That foolish decision deceded to an erratic 
right-wing extremist politician, Mr. Ishikawa, the ability to provoke war between the United States and China. Our base in Diego Garcia rests on British control, but British control offends international standards as much as, as China's behavior in the South China Sea does. U.S. use of surveillance aircraft and, and naval vessels to provoke Chinese defenses and read them electronically so that we'll know what they would do in an actual conflict evokes the deepest fears in China that come out of the century of Western predation from the sea. Strategists like the late Zbigniew Brzezinski have consistently argued that this is counterproductive behavior by us, but we go ahead and do it. So we have some very legitimate grievances against China, but we live in a glass house and we need to be careful where we throw the stones. So step back, how do we, how do we manage relations with this rising power? Let's start with some basic perspectives. First, China's not going to collapse. Unlike the Soviet Union or today's Russia, it has a competitive, self-sustaining economy. And it's taken better care of its people than most of the countries in the world. In 2015, the number of Chinese families who owned a home was twice the number of Indian families who had access to a toilet. China has a sustainable economic and social system. Second, though, uh, China's not destined for fast growth indefinitely. It was coming down anyway, as it does in all the Asian miracle economies. But its current administration is worsening that by mismanaging the Chinese economy. The things that our politicians denounce most, like the plan for manufacturing 2025, should actually make them quite happy. China is repeating the mistakes that Japan made, turning inward and turning over the economy to a group of inefficient traditional industries. Moreover, this Chinese administration is giving control over strategic business decisions in, in every business to a party committee can you imagine what would happen to the American economy if we gave final strategic decision-making to our politicians in, in Google and Apple and Intel? So China's growth is so, slowing. It's less than the official figures show. And it's destined to slow more. And, Several decades of huge budget surpluses have given Chinese leaders a bull market mentality. Bull market mentalities always come to tears. Third, within a few years, 
China will, will change dramatically. Its political strategy of maximizing control is at war with its economic strategy of market efficiency. China's elite political ties are shifting against Xi Jinping. China's decades of rapid growth have led to extremely sharp generational change. Each generational change brings in a leadership with very different views and policies. That generational change is now overdue. So China will experience fundamental change. Might get much better, might get much worse. It will not remain the same. The U.S. therefore needs to position itself for rapid adaptation to a range of possible outcomes. We have to be ready for a much nastier, more authoritarian China that tries to subdue Taiwan. We also need to be ready for a more friendly, flexible, reasonable behaving China. We can't ensure a good outcome, but if we lock ourselves into a Cold War mentality, which is very much the tendency today, we can ensure a bad outcome. Key related question, can we live with the China model? Uh, many US commentators led by Princeton's Aaron Friedberg argue that we can't live with another big power that has a different system. That lesson was learned from the depredations of Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. But unlike those dictatorships, China is not trying to impose its system on others. Unlike Russia, it has not tried to destabilize democracies. China sees its system as unique. That's wrong because it has emulated the successes of the earlier Asian miracle economies. But that mentality is a deterrent to the idea of imposing the system everywhere. Beijing's mantra is that every country should have the right to decide its own path implicitly shouldn't be pushed into having our kind of system. While China is not trying to impose its system, its success in improving the lives of its people, compared with, for instance, India and the Philippines, challenges our insistence that our form of governance is ideal for every country at every level of development. We can't beat that argument by force or by subversion or by incentives. We and the Indians need to find a way to make democracy work better. That's our problem. That's not a Chinese threat. But where does this leave us? Well, for the foreseeable future, 
we can't dominate or defeat China. China can't dominate or defeat us. We have a pure competitor. The thing that the George W. Bush administration said it would never allow to happen. Fortunately, that peer competitor is not seeking war. The alternative to living with it is nuclear war. A world in which multiple systems coexist is normal in history. For several decades, we've been spoiled by a world where we're where the, the dominant economic power, dominant military power, and the dominant role model. China's success, together with the 2008 financial crisis and recent political developments in Washington and London, have changed that. If we eschew nuclear war, we have to live in the world as it is, not the world we wish. come back to my central theme. The world we live in is a world of geoeconomics. In the Cold War, we won with a geoeconomic strategy. The Bretton Woods system, development bank, World Bank, funded infrastructure, and the other institutions created common standards and integrated the world together. Economic success stabilized, energized, and unified our global system. Again, military superiority was absolutely necessary, but far from sufficient. Having won the Cold War, we allowed the Bretton Woods institutions to atrophy. A stingy Congress refused to increase the capital of the World Bank and the IMF, even though that ultimately costs us nothing. Congress didn't want to reform the governments of those institutions to conform with the modern world rather than the world of the 1940s, because that would involve granting more influence to China and and other rising powers like India. We also gutted the State Department budget. We eliminated U.S. Information Service, and we truncated our aid programs. More recently, we have acted against the, reacted against the constraints of global leadership. Sometimes in dealings with allies, we paid a price for global leadership. But the prize of global leadership was the strongest role in world history. The effort to disproportionately constrain China created a vacuum. For instance, a vacuum of $12 trillion in what was needed for infrastructure development in developing countries. More recently, a vacuum on international economic integration, environmental improvement, and climate change. 
Into that vacuum, China has moved. The Belt and Road Initiative, abbreviated as BRI, is now the big game. It emulates our Bretton Woods system. It's development in banks, funding infrastructure in developing countries, and a set of initiatives to create common standards, common standards in railroads, in, in IT, and customs procedures, and create a more integrated world economy. This is familiar. BRI is a constructive theft of US intellectual property. It's the Bretton Woods system with Chinese characteristics. Moreover, China is now the leader in every form of green energy and is spending more on environmental amelioration than all of Europe or the United States. Meanwhile, we abandon leadership on these issues and subsidize a declining coal industry. BRI is an inspiring vision, as it was when it was our vision. In Africa, China convenes four dozen African national leaders and talks about development, and then helps them with roads and railroads and all kinds of business. We put a special forces team in each country threatened by terrorism and have an offshore naval presence. If that's the contest for influence, China wins every time. Even on terror, the biggest uh, success we've had in Africa has been George W. Bush's HIV initiative. On terrorism, we win local battles, but the development process under BRI, whenever it works, wins wars. Americans have three possible responses to BRI. First, we can compete. This is our game. We're good at it. But we withdrew from the field. The Japanese compete successfully. China gets a BRI power deal in Indonesia, offers second-rate technology, big debt, demands a state guarantee. Japan comes in, offers first-rate technology, a multi-decade record of reliability, and does feasibility studies so that no state guarantee is required. Japan wins, Indonesia wins. This is how things worked when we were competing with Japan in the 1970s. Second, we can compete and co-opt, as we did when we faced the same situation with Japan. Japan was competing unfairly in exactly the same ways as China today. We gradually negotiated some common standards. We and the Japanese both won. Above all, countries like Indonesia won. The same is possible with China. The key new Chinese initiative, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, 
accepts all the basic standards of the World Bank and the IMF. It's, it's run by an executive who's a veteran of both the World Bank and the ADB. And it does many of its projects jointly with the World Bank and the ADB. Now those standards are not followed by a lot of other Chinese banks, but they show the direction that China intended to move. Our third option is that we can stand on the sidelines and whine. So far, this third option has been our main choice. I want to push it further. Not only can we compete and win, we win even when BRI succeeds. When successful, Bretton Woods or BRI stabilizes countries, reducing the risk of war and terrorism. As I mentioned earlier, in the 1960s, Indonesia had more jihadis than all the rest of the world combined. Development essentially made that, those movements evaporate. If we had addressed the Indonesian problem primarily with the military, we'd still be fighting and losing half a century later. Similarly, in the 1970s, when Bangladesh was formed, everybody knew that this was going to be the ultimate failed state. Henry Kissinger was very eloquent about that. It should have become a giant jungle Somalia spewing terrorists around the world. What happened? When wages started to rise in China, many of the factories moved from China to Bangladesh. Bangladesh became the world's second largest producer of garments and textiles. All these women got jobs and that stabilized the country. Interestingly, the largest owner of those factories was American. So the stabilization of Bangladesh, the elimination of probably the great threat of Islamic terrorism in, in the last two decades was a joint Sino-American success. Recently, Ethiopia was torn apart by six violently contending Leninist parties. And it had one of the worst famines of the modern era. But more recently, it's been the world's fastest growing economy. That stabilized the country's politics. Interestingly, its politics have even become a little more liberal recently. The largest contributor to Ethiopian success is China. We benefit, and China benefits, from these extraordinary successes. I would argue that as a rule of thumb, each of these successes saves the United States a trillion dollars out of its national security budget. The outcome of BRI is unclear. 
what BRI is and how it works changes pretty frequently. What's important is that China is playing the right game. We Americans are not. Uh, why is the U.S. failing to play the right game when its Cold War strategy playing that game was so successful? Well, a very small part of the problem is that our scholars failed to articulate the new game. The big problem is that in peacetime, our national resources are allocated by Congress that mainly responds to lobbying groups. And the military has possibly the biggest lobbying group in world history. State Department has none, AID has none, Information Service has none. Our problem is not a self-aggrandizing military. In fact, our, our top military officers are the most conscious that we have left the military bereft of the complementary resources that it needs to succeed. General Mattis said, quote, if you don't fund the State Department fully, then I need to buy more ammunition, unquote. If we don't re-engage the other instruments, especially the economic instrument, we're not going to just waste in, uh, ammunition. We're going to waste a lot of lives. I've talked about co competition and cooperation in the economic area. L let me talk a little bit more about the national security area. We're very conscious of the conflicts in national security, but also the world's greatest threat of nuclear war is North Korea. And there the Chinese and American goals of, of denuclearization overlap about 90 to 95%. Middle East stability matters even more to China than it does to us because China is much more dependent on Middle East oil. We combine our efforts to combat piracy. The greatest threats to our future, including our national security future, are climate change and environmental degradation. Chinese-American collaboration on that is the world's hope of success. The national security benefits of the global development created by Sino-American cooperation are immense, but they're never counted. Again, Chinese leaders are very conscious of common interests and don't seek to destabilize the US and EU democracies the way Russia does. So let me conclude, what are the overarching issues? For America, if we want to live in a peaceful world, we Americans have to accept that we have a peer competitor, something that we once said we would never allow. We can manage that or choose nuclear war. China wants to be number one, but isn't trying to destroy us. 
we can no longer rule the seas to the beaches of Fujian. We can no longer rule space by ourselves. We can no longer set IT standards or trade and investment rules by ourselves. No strategy will get us to some dominant state. The future is just competition forever. That's very difficult for us Americans to accept. But I repeat that whenever we have tried to confine China to a disproportionately small role, we've harmed ourselves and we've enhanced Chinese power. China's challenge is that it has to grow up. If it wants to be a big power, it can't aggrandize the South China Sea as if it were Malaysia or Vietnam. If it's a great power, then it can't exploit its previous century of weakness and play the victim. If it has four of the world's 10 largest banks, as it does, it can't use infant industry arguments to keep out foreign banks. If it wants Huawei to have the opportunity to dominate the whole world's 5G, then it's going to have to let Western companies have comparable opportunities to dominate some things in China. Adolescence can be a dangerous time. China's current administration is not progressing toward adulthood. Uh, while the United States can coexist with China, it still has to compete successfully. General Motors can win while Toyota and, and Tesla also win, but the competition is fierce. In the Cold War, we integrated all the elements of national power, diplomatic, information, military, economic. Our war colleges call that dime. Now we have the world's finest military, but we've allowed all the other instruments to atrophy. We have a military budget as large as the next eight powers, but our military is always exhausted. We don't lose, but we don't win. America can only succeed if we recognize that since World War II, we've been in a new game. It's, it's time to restore a national strategy for the new game. Thank you. Hope I've provoked some questions. Okay, I think we are very thankful, should be very thankful to Bill for this extraordinarily stimulating uh, talk. Uh, the message that uh, we won this war with the Soviet Union, not by military, but by economics, and that China is now playing the economic game, and we're playing more of the military game, uh, is very, very profound. Uh, and should have a lot of lessons and implications. <clears throat> One of the deep questions I have is whether the United States would screw up in an era of independent entrepreneurship. 
now needs more national coordination and control over systems to control over the wealth. If you take something like building high-speed rail, uh, China has about 12,000 miles of high-speed rail they put up in the last two or three decades. We have zero. Um, if we have uh, private enterprise to protect the property around the railways, uh, we're not going to get those built. Uh, we're not going to have the capital uh, to build that, and it wouldn't take the priority. Uh, as you know, China produces about a million tons of steel a year. We produce about 100 uh, thousand tons, about 10 times as much. Uh, do we need now more national control over our economic issues against some of the private wealth in order to play uh, a, a constructive role both in our own country and to be able to play that on in the world stage? Uh, and uh, secondly, uh, what about the rest of the United States now? We have so many disaffected people who have not been able to have a very satisfactory economic or promising life and are alienated from the dominant trends. And how can we combine our efforts to help the economy around the world and work in such a way to resolve those problems? Uh, those aren't exactly easy questions, and maybe they're peripheral to what you're doing, but they seem somewhat to me so uh, essential if we try to consider what do we do uh, to accomplish what you want to accomplish. Now, I wonder what you would say to those two questions to start off before we throw it on the public. They are big, important questions, uh, and they're crucial. Uh, when you look at the... the the roles of government versus the private sector, there are two extremes. One extreme is the old Soviet Union, where they, they, tried to, they tried to manage and control everything, and that's a catastrophe. And the opposite extreme is where you denigrate the role of government and say, no, no planning is acceptable. Uh, and, and we have unfortunately moved toward that extreme. Government has some essential functions. Uh, one is to plan infrastructure. The roads don't build themselves. A Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, uh, pushed forward the Transcontinental Rail Railroad. A Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, uh, created the interstate high highway system. In the face of tremendous opposition from a Republican Congress that said, you know, we shouldn't be doing that stuff. A second essential function of government is you have to have a sense of where society is going and plan for that. Um, when we were shifting from an agricultural economy to industrial economy, we, we started with about 98% of the people in, in agriculture. Now we've got 2%. Well, we built the, rail, the railroads and the roads. 
and and we created modern legislation for cities, uh, zoning and regulation of industry. So as as efficiency reduced the number of jobs in agriculture, people had a place to go. The society didn't fragment. There were terrible strains, you know. Read William's William Jennings Bryan speech. You know, we will not be crucified on a cross of gold. But we did it. What's different in the modern era? Manufacturing jobs are declining just the way agricultural jobs did, and they're they're going to vanish almost to the extent that agricultural jobs did. Uh, if you look at the curve of manufacturing employment, it's been declining steadily since 1947. The main, the main reason is automation and organizational efficiencies, as was the case in ag agriculture. But uh, today's ideology is, oh, well, we shouldn't do anything about that. The Democrats are dependent on the manufacturing union, so they won't talk about moving people into the services sector where the jobs are. And helping people would require giving the government jobs and funds and authority, and the Republicans won't do that. So it's much easier to blame China. Globalization is responsible for about one out of every seven job losses. Our politicians of both parties focus on that. The third function is governments is essential. We're seeing this this week and this month. Government has to prepare for emergencies. The reason we don't have enough ventilators and and protective equipment uh, is that. Our legislators and our, our leaders systematically gutted our systems for preparing for these things. So these, these three functions are absolutely essential. Uh, that brings me to your second question, which is related to the first. The discontents result primarily from two things. One is we're not taking care of the people whose jobs are being displaced. And the second is we've allowed an extraordinary inequality to develop in this country. If you look at the history of other societies, uh, the Chinese dynasties, for instance, you start out with a system that tries to give most people a little something and then it gradually gets gets all the wealth centralized in a, a few people and and you have a revolution uh, we are experiencing that same kind of phenomenon people are so angry they don't vote based on policies. They vote based on their anger. 
Uh, so we have to restore some balance in the functions, the division of labor between government and society. And we have to restore some balance in, in the, the distribution of, of wealth and resources in our society. I want to thank you for a really remarkable broad gauge session, which I think is a perfect start for our Zoom series. And I think it sets the broad framework of looking at all kinds of questions. And I want to also thank uh, Nick Drake and uh, Mark Grady uh, for their w technical work in making this go so well. Uh, and for Mike Zoni, Dan Murphy for their support for this program. And for all of you who have been very loyal to the Fairbanks Center over the years, and whom we hope will be loyal again to our new series on Zoom, uh, we express our deep appreciation. Uh, stay in good health, and we hope to be in good health and back with you again next week. Thank you very much.